All right, if you have a a Bible with you, would you uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8? And if you don't have a Bible and are using one of our red Bibles in the pew and chair in front of you, um, Romans 8 is on page 550. Page 550. Um, We're beginning a a new series today, and um, because it's a new year, and with new years, uh, we always want the new year to be better, right? And it seems like especially now, people are really hoping that 2022 is better than 2021. Um, But we always go into a year hoping it's better. I can't remember a time where it was like, you know what? Last year was pretty good. I don't think we need to go better. No, we, we always want the next year to be better than the one we had. And so we resolve for like individually to, to do new habits, um, to change a certain thing about our lives, to, to achieve a certain goal. We, we always want to better ourselves or, or to change something in the new year. You know, lots of people try new diets or reading schedules or workout routines or something. And it's this desire for change. We always want to change to be better. This series, which we're calling From Death to Life, is all about the most radical change that we can go through. The change that can happen from being dead to being alive. And and for Christians, this is what this means, that the Bible tells us that apart from God's grace... We are dead in our sins. But God, who is full of grace and mercy, made us alive with Christ. And so for Christians, we have experienced this change, this radical change, the the greatest change possible from death to life. And so this sermon series for the next uh, nine weeks, so through the end of February, we're going to look at nine different acts of God that he has done to us to bring us from death to life. This is what it means to be saved. This is God's salvation, bringing us from death to life. And so we begin here in Romans 8, talking about the beginning of this salvation that we've received from God. We're going to talk about something called election. Now, if you're aware of that word, you might think, well, that's a a heady theological term, and we're not... We're not going to get too far into that. It's actually, it's supposed to be encouraging. And so we're going to see from Romans 8, this letter from Paul to a church of Christians to encourage them. He uses this idea of election to comfort them. So we're going to read chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And as we read this passage, we're going to see that that election, it, it means these three things. It means that God loves you, that God chose you, and that God is for you, that God loves you, God chose you, and God is for you. Let's read Romans 8, starting at verse 28. He starts in uh, the middle of this paragraph, giving encouragement to Christians who are suffering. And he says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement, and we pray now that your word would speak to us and Open our eyes to understand your deep love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First, election tells us that God loves us. That's how Paul begins. He talks about how uh, for those who are going through hardship, he reminds us that, that all things will work together for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose, who those who are, he, he foreknew, he predestined. That word predestined, it means uh, to, to predetermine. And he's saying that those whom God has predetermined for this salvation, no matter what you're going through in life right now, for you, in the end, you will see that all things worked out for your good. For those whom he predetermined or pre-chose, pre-elected. But Paul says, who are those whom he elects? It's those whom he foreknew. Um, those whom he knew beforehand. Those are the people that he has chosen. What does it mean for God to know someone beforehand? What, is, what does that mean? Um, when I was in middle school, it was the first time we had recess without a playground. So everyone would play basketball or football out on like the blacktop or the grass. And I remember all the time, uh, you know, standing in line as the two captains picked their teams. Uh, maybe you've had this humiliating experience uh, where the captain just, you know, goes down the line and, and chooses those that they want on their team. And I, I was never picked first. I was often picked last. Uh, but there was a classmate of mine, Connor, 
And Connor actually went to elementary school with him, and then middle school, and then in high school as well. Connor, he was always picked first if he wasn't a captain. Uh, he, he was a star athlete. He actually went on to be the quarterback of our high school Division I state championship quarterback two times in a row. He actually went on to play uh, for the Air Force Academy, quarterback in the Air Force, like nationally televised games. And this guy was incredible. And so everyone knew that about him, that if they chose Connor, they were going to win. And so every time, always picked first, Connor. And they knew me. And they knew I was not going to play very well, and so I was, I was picked, but towards the end of the line. Is that what Paul says? That God foreknew us in that way? That from the beginning of time, he looked down like the telescope of history, and, you know, he's all-knowing. He, he knows everyone that's ever lived. He knows everything that we've ever done. He knows every thought that we've ever had. Is Paul saying that God looked down the tunnel of history and saw, well, these people are going to love me. They're going to do wonderful things for my kingdom. They're going to win. And because I know that, I'm going to choose them for my team. Is that what Paul's saying? I don't think so. I don't think that Paul is saying that God foreknew who would love him and then chose them. And here's why I don't think that's what this means. First, if that were the case, then there is something intrinsic about us as Christians, you as a Christian, that makes you better than non-Christians. Because when God looks at the history of time, he sees in you something different than non-Christians and says, that person's going to love me. Well, that results in pride. It it makes us arrogant that that we have something better than non-Christians. That runs totally counter to the whole message of God's grace, that we are saved by faith. But then secondly, I think maybe more real to us is, If God chose us because we would love him, well, then his choosing of us is conditioned upon our choosing of him. And if his choosing of us is conditioned on our love of him, well, then we will be weighed down with the anxiety and pressure of having to keep up this sense of love and affection and emotion towards God. And so on good days, when when we feel really connected with God, that might make us feel great. But on those days and weeks and seasons of life in which we're struggling, maybe with sin or a dry season, not drawing near to the Lord, and it's in those seasons, then we look and say, man, I I don't know if I really love God all that much. And if his choice of me was based on my love of him, well, I'm worried he might not have chosen me. So I don't think that Paul is saying that God foreknew you and that you would love him and therefore chose you. I think he's saying something else. And to understand what he is saying, we have to know about knowing. We have to know what does it mean for someone in the Bible to know someone. Often in the Bible, knowing is far more than just a cognitive recognition of something. But it's to 
place your specific and particular attention and affection and delight in someone. Often in the Old Testament, we hear stories of husbands and wives getting married and having children. It's, it's described as one person knew his wife. It's, it's far more than, well, yeah, I, I know Sarah. No, there's something intimate about that. It's, it's, it is a word synonymous with particular deep love. So what does it mean for God to have loved us beforehand and chosen us? Well, first, it means, as we read in our assurance of forgiveness, that God's love came towards us before the foundation of the world. That this is this eternal plan orchestrated by the Father who, who chooses his own and, and accomplished by the Son who willingly stepped into the world to die for them and then applied to us by the Spirit daily in our lives. This is this eternal plan of salvation that God loved you before the foundation of the world. But also, it means that he loved you before you could do anything to make yourself worthy of that love. It means that, that God chose you before you had any ability to either earn his love or, or earn his unlove. The only example that I can really think of that gets at the heart of this, this, this unconditional love of someone before they can do good or evil, is, is with the birth of a child. I mean, you love this child before they can even do anything to warrant your love for them and their, your affection for them. I mean, you love this child. And, and even more than that, because there is this family bond, like this is a part of your family, this is a part of your blood, like they are part of you. I think adoption of children is, is maybe an even greater example of this, where a family, a, a parent or a family says, I am choosing to love this child before I know what will happen to this kid's life before I know anything about them, before I know what they will grow up to look like or do or not do, that is the perfect picture of this unconditional love. And so Paul is saying that God loved you and chose you. He elected you to be his own. I hope that's comforting to you. I know that it's comforting for me. That I don't have to be anxious about my own love for God being the basis of his love for me. But I can rest in the truth that he loved me before I could do anything to love him back. Paul is saying election means God loves you. But he also says election means he chose you. And he chose you to do something. He picked you in order to accomplish something in you. We read that he, he chose us, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's some objective that he wants to accomplish in us, and that was the reason why he chose us, to do something to us, to go on this journey of transformation, this, this path that leads 
to conformity to the image of Christ. Uh, have you ever watched The Price is Right? I haven't watched it since um, Drew Carey took over, but I remember as a kid during the summer, home from school, it was really the only thing on, I would watch The Price is Right. And I, always, so I was envious of the vacation packages that the contestants would win, that they would you know, win this amazing trip or, or cruise or all expenses paid travel across the world. And I thought that would, that would have been so fun to just go and travel and see new places and experience new things. Paul is saying that when Jesus, when, when God chooses us, he's choosing us to go on a journey with the most glorious destination in mind, being conformed to the image of Christ. And this is what we were made for. Remember in Genesis, God made humanity, and how did he make him? In the image of God himself, he made man and woman. And although we have this sinful nature that has corrupted us, we have been recreated, as the New Testament says, after the image of Christ. And this is this ongoing process in which we are conformed more and more to the glory of Christ. So that the Spirit is working in us, changing our, our actions and our words and our thoughts to reflect the actions, words, and thoughts of Christ. So that we would learn to love one another and serve our neighbors sacrificially the way that Jesus loves us and gave himself up for us. That we would be conformed in our inner being so that our joy and delight would be on the Lord only and that we would worship him in everything that we are. That is what God chose us to do in us, to conform us to Christ. And, and that's not going to happen fully here. It's going to happen fully when we get to the destination, when we arrive at the place in which the Lord is preparing for us. Because Paul continues, he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then in 30, he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's not this immediate transfer from being elected to being glorified. It's this process of election and calling and justification. And there's many others. That's why we're doing nine weeks. We're starting with election, we'll end with glorification, but we're going to take each one at a time along this path to learn what does the Lord want to do in our lives to bring us to glory. It's this unbreakable chain of events, this, this golden chain, this, this immovable path that the Lord has put us on, and it ends in glory. And this should it should be encouraging to us because we're all in process along this journey. The last two weeks, my family traveled for the holidays. Maybe you did too. And uh, we, we traveled two different times in the car with uh, two kids. And this was really the first time uh, that the question, are we there yet, became that sort of unending question over and over again. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, no, no. 
And we got to the point where I actually like, drew out a map on Theo's uh, drawing pad and sort of marked the destinations that we, you know, the rest stop and the gas station and the, the place for lunch and then grandma and grandma's house with a big star. So that he could know, hey, this is where we're going. This is where we're at now. Here's what's next and here's what's to come. And yet, despite that, he was asking the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are on a journey and there are mile markers along the way until we reach our destination. And I, we ask sometimes the question, God, are we there yet? And his response is no. But that's a good thing because that means he's not done working on us, that there's still more for him to do in our lives as we progress towards glory. And so two applications here. One, do not convince yourself uh, that the rest stop is the destination. Do not convince yourself that you've reached it. The Lord wants to work on you. So don't, don't say, I'm done. The journey is still ahead. But then secondly, you need to ask yourself, maybe this year, like, are you resolving to do anything in your life this year? Maybe ask yourself, what do you need to grow on? What do you need to grow in your relationship with the Lord this year? What do you, what do you think is the next step on your journey? Maybe that is, um, you know, drawing near to God's word more. Maybe that is drawing near to the community that the Lord has placed you in. Maybe that is taking steps of faith and loving your neighbor. Maybe that's sharing the gospel with your friends. You also need to ask, what does the Lord want to work on my life this year? Not just what do you want to do in your life this year with the Lord. What does the Lord want to do with you this year? Where is he pressing in on you? Where does he want to take you? Maybe he's taking you this way, and you've been going that way. He says, no, come back on the path that I've set you on, this unbreakable chain of events. The Lord has chosen us to do something with us. Third and and finally, Paul says, yes, election means that God loves you, and it means that God has chosen you. Finally, he says, it means that God is for you. He says this in this rhetorical question in verse 31. What then shall we say in in regard to these things, these, these gifts of grace? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, for Paul's audience... And today, too, there's a lot in our lives that we could say, look, there are things working against me. There are things working against God's mission in my life. There are things working against God's kingdom that he's building through us. And and Paul actually lists a number of sort of generic things that we could count. And he says, shall tribulation or distress you know, that's the, that's the burdens of life and living in a corrupted and broken world. What, what about persecution? Or he, he actually says danger or sword. You know, we, we do face rejection. 
from friends and family when we take that step of faith and say, can I, can I tell you about the hope that I have in Jesus? Can I, can I share with you about what does it mean to confess our sin and trust in his forgiveness? Can I share with you this great joy that I have? We face rejection. We even face persecution, thinking that we're archaic and backwards. But he goes on, he says, famine or nakedness. These are events outside of our control that sort of come into our lives unexpectedly. You know, joblessness, homelessness, sickness, bankruptcy. These are realities that we experience. You know, just this week in Colorado, those fires, in, in just two short hours, over 500 homes in a suburb were burned up. I'd imagine many of them this morning are asking, why is this world against me? Paul is saying, if God is for you, who can be against you? And he's, he's, not, saying, he's not saying that these things, um, you know, that, that to be a Christian is to experience this life of comfort. He's saying that if we really understood election and what it means for God to love us, then even these things that, that come upon us suddenly, that come upon us maliciously, that come upon us by nature of the broken world, those things seen in light of the glory of his love for us, they are but light and momentary afflictions on our way to glory. What he's saying is there's this beautiful panorama of God's love for us that begins from eternity past with his divine and sovereign love for you. And that it ends in eternity to come with glory and worship and joy. And all along this way, there's this unbreakable chain of events in which the Lord is saving his own people. And it is so sure that we will begin with love and end with glory that even the hardships of our life today, and they are real, are nothing compared to that glory. He is for us, not against us. You might ask, though, Jeremy, what about our sin? What about the times in which we willingly choose to not love God? What about those times in which we willingly choose to turn our heads and our hearts away from him? Like you might say, Jeremy, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I'm ensnared in now. How could God be for me? Well, Paul says, Yes, even your sin does not get in the way of God being for you. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Who will bring a charge or an accusation against God's elect? He says, no one. No one is able to bring up your sin to condemn you anymore. Because he says this, Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
This is one of only two places in the New Testament in which Jesus is seen as standing before the throne, interceding for his own. What does that mean? It means that he is standing like a lawyer before the judgment seat of his father. And his father is hearing condemnation after condemnation, accusation after accusation. He is hearing the lies that you hear in your own head, the lies from the great deceiver again and again saying, look at Jeremy. Look what he's done again. Look at him. He doesn't deserve this. And yet Jesus says, dad, he's mine. Dad, I've covered him. Dad, I have already died for him. Dad, I've already paid his price. Dad, he is already forgiven. Dad, he is yours. He is interceding for us, always pleading our case, always saying his sin is forgiven. This is what it means to be elected, to have his love on you, to have him choose you for something glorious, and to have him for you, to have his own son plead your case again and again, always pointing to himself, saying, I took that from him. For those who are the elect of God, they are loved and chosen and cared for. Jesus died for you. You have been brought from death to life. How do we know that that's us? Like, how do you know if that's you? How do you know that you are loved? How do you know that you have been chosen for this glory? How do you know that you now, even this morning, have an advocate for you before the throne of God? Do you love Jesus? Do you hate your sin and confess it and repent of it? Do you rely upon the Spirit to work in your life to bring you into conformity? Do you rely upon the Word of God and communion with Him to draw near and draw strength from Him? That is the fruit of your election, that you love him, that you hate your sin, that you confess your sin, that you rely upon him, that you trust in him, that you go to him. Every week we conclude the sermon with a confession of faith and a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Both of those things are an opportunity for us to say, Lord, I love you. I have faith in you, I confess my sin to you, and I'm recommitting again now my love. Not that his love is based upon your love for him, but your love for him is based upon his love for you. Let's pray.